listening to Doctor Who Family Tree, a Power of Three podcast production. Hey, that's a funny looking deck, man. How do you play poker with these? <laughs> They're tarot cards. You are familiar with the tarot? I wouldn't say that, but I've seen the cards before. Dr. Shrek. Doctor of metaphysics? The science which investigates the first principles of nature and thought. And nonsense. Shrek is a German word, doesn't it? It means fright, uh, fear, something like that. The more exact translation would be terror. This deck can forewarn us. I call it my house of horrors. Welcome to another episode of Doctor Who Family Trees, which is part of the Power of Three pod family, if you will. Uh, welcome, Davy. how are you? Hello, Tom. Yeah, I'm okay. Surviving. Can't complain too, too much, really. <laughs> Mr. Kenny Smith, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Tom, and I hope everyone out there in listener land is well as well. This is another episode of Doctor Who Family Trees, uh, another branch, if you will, of the Power of Three podcast, where we look at our favourite television shows and movies over the years that have a specific and obvious connection with Doctor Who, whether that's actors, writers or directors in common. So, Kenny, you have nominated the subject for this particular episode. Tell us what you've nominated and explain how it is qualified to be a member of the Doctor Who family tree. Go. Doctor Terror's House of Horrors is my nomination, which is a 1965 British horror film, which on the surface of it, you might think, oh, I don't get it. But then when you look at the people who produced it and who's in the cast, then you start to realise, hang on, there's loads of Doctor Who connections here. Firstly, it was produced by Amicus Productions, who, as you probably know, made the Peter Cushing Dalek films, which were, uh, which were from the creative force of Milton Sabotsky, who, strange enough, wrote this film. And it stars Peter Cushing as the titular character, Dr. Terror. It's the first in a series of anthology films from Amicus. So it sort of follows that portmanteau um, format where you've got several short stories that are all linked together by one ongoing storyline. And here we have five men on a train on the way into London, and they're joined by a sixth who is Dr. Shrek, or Peter Cushing. And of course, Shrek is German for terror. And during this train journey, he brings out a pack of tarot cards, which he refers to as his house of horrors, and proceeds to reveal the destinies of each of his fellow travellers in the carriage, which gives the framework to tell the five horror stories. It's a very, um, I, I found it really exciting. I hadn't seen this film in years. And then as soon as the credits came up, it was like, oh, he was in Doctor Who. He was in Doctor Who. He was Doctor Who. That's as in DR Who, as in the film version, of course. And yes, it's rather exciting. Davy. Have you got feelings about this movie? Feelings, <laughs> feelings. Do you do you emote about it? Does does it get you in the heart? Well, I'm you know I'm a big fan of you know Peter Cushing's my favourite actor of all time. It's probably it's folk, most folk probably know that know me. Um, so it's a film that I'm I'm familiar with. I'm a big fan of the, the sort of portmanteau anthology movies. Amicus made a few of them. I bought the box set many years ago that had 
this one and a few of the others, like um, The House That Drip Blood. There's also other movies like, which I hope we'll do, like Vault of Horror and the, oh, I can't remember the name of it. The one Asylum. Yeah. Asylum? Yes, Asylum. Yeah. Or, yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, that's right. That's cool. That'll do. <laughs> Let's make that seamless in the edit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this one, like Kenny said, I hadn't seen this one either for a very long time. I worked out that I probably hadn't seen it in about 30 years. Um, I don't think I watched the, the DVD when I bought the, the Amicus box set because I'd seen because I'd seen the film. Do, do I have feelings for it? I think I probably enjoy some of the later Amicus anthologies more because they're a little bit schlock, a bit a bit more schlocky and a bit more out and out sort of, you know, early 70s horror. But I was really struck by this one. I was really struck by how well made it was. There was real care, obviously, taken with a lot of the setups and the, the camera angles and the cinematography. There was a real sense that um, you know, the people involved had really done their best to make it to make each of the segments as different from each other as they possibly could. And quite the cast is, you know, I have to say, a stretch, the only person I could spot that had been in television, Doctor Who, was Michael Goff. But the cast overall was phenomenal. I and mean, where else are you going to see Alan Freeman? giving lines and doing acting you know what i mean Indeed. It's, it, it made me sort of think i'm really glad they picked him instead of you know maybe perhaps another famous dj from the time which <laughs> might not have lasted <laughs> you might not have you know transferred so well to the modern sensibility that's right sean wadu wadu um yeah i i remember this from my childhood as well it was one of those i think it was one of those double bills that used to get a double bill horror films on either bbc or, or, or itv both channels used to used to run them uh, quite regularly um and and i i remember loving it as a kid because like you david cushing is, is certainly one of my favorite actors and mm-hmm. you know i i've loved him since long before star wars i think there's a whole generation of fans who probably saw star wars and thought oh he's good who is he which is what mm-hmm. i thought was what i thought about alec guinness when i saw star wars the first thing i'd ever seen him in but i was very familiar with with peter cushing i love almost every film he's ever been in he's got i read a biography of him recently and uh, he is just the glue that holds this together but isn't it fantastic to see peter cushing and chris felice sitting next to each other in a, in a train carriage yes and not at either side or you know yeah. each other across a, a table or and, and trying course, to kill each other yeah, and yeah. of course they were very good friends in real life and it's just such a great cast. The only member of the cast, you know, of the of the kind of six central characters, and of course they're all men. I guess that's just a part of of movie making in the nineteen sixties. Women didn't get much of a look in, um, yeah, especially in this sort of film. But so the, the the core six of the cast are all men. The only one of them who I just didn't recognise uh, was the the Scottish actor Neil McCallum. Yeah, I wasn't too familiar with him either. He looked vaguely no. familiar. I'm sure I must have seen him in something, but he's obviously not as well known as the other guys. You know, Alan Freeman, obviously known for 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 being a DJ and for advertising Brentford Nylons in the in the right. 1970s. Uh, Roy, Ca- Roy Castle, Christopher Lee, and Donald Sutherland. And Donald Sutherland is obviously the yank that they've got in to try to market it. Uh, yeah, on the other side of the Atlantic, but it's quite a cast, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of these casts that it's a bit like the original Magnificent Seven, and that. A lot of the the actors who were cast achieved greater things later on, or you know, developed their careers and got a bit more notoriety. So, watching it at this sort of position in time, you know, it gets as a, a bit more of a spark because you yeah. have more association with the actors than maybe you did when the film first came out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there are, there are five short stories within this. Let's let's go through them, shall we? The first one mm-hmm. is uh, features the aforementioned 
Neil McCallum. So, so let me get this right, Kenny. I mean, I only saw this last night, but let's just yep. make it clear for listeners that the premise of this is that each of these five men have their fortunes told about something that has not yet happened, but will happen unless death intervenes to stop it happening. That's, That's very much the case. Yep. Right. Where we've, they've all got a, and there's these five short films, they've all got their own uh, horrific uh, theme to them and uh, subtitles. So you can, yeah. The, the first one I say is Werewolf, with uh, which rather gives it away somewhat. It does, but it's very good. I mean, I really enjoyed this yeah. one. We've got um, the architect returning to his old family home in a Scottish island to make to do the renovations for its new owner, and then of course finds that there's a secret in the basement with uh, with a coffin and a werewolf is on the rise. Caleb, do you know what this is? Be the coffin of Cosmo Valdemar, the werewolf. Over 200 years ago, Cosmo Valdemar claimed that this house was really his, and that my ancestors had stolen it from him. And he vowed that one day he'd return. He swore that his place would be taken by whoever owned the house, and that he himself would once again assume human shape. His grave was never found. In the walls of the cellar for all this time. Not all this time. This plaster is new. I'm going to find out what's in that coffin. Come on, give me a hand. It's, it's wonderfully atmospheric, but it's yes, it doesn't feel like Scotland at all, but it's very much it's got that um there's a je ne sais quoi. It does have a Scottish air to it without actually looking and feeling particularly generally Scottish. Obviously, it's in a studio somewhere uh, in Londonshire. But uh, we've got uh, in the guest cast, of course, in, in this short, we've got Edward Underdown, who you may remember as Zastor in Megloss. <laughs> right. And, Which uh, one's Zastor? He's the old fellow who wears purple and gets the wonderful line of, if you could, right. he's the one who can see the strands that bind the universe, except he's incredibly unwell and he's not very good at all in Megalos. And who, who was he in this? He is Todd, who's one of the helper bodies who sort of shows up and doesn't right. do particularly much, but he's, he's sure. there. Okay, that's um, interesting. It's, it was- I mean, it's, a were- it's a really good short werewolf story it's not as if it's you know you're trying to drag out somebody who turns into a wolf and keeps it going for you know 90 minutes or so the fact it's nice short wham bam thank you ma'am in a coffin and yeah it's good what i liked about it was that it was so different from the sort of normal traditional werewolf story you know there wasn't a scene where someone gets bit for example and tries to hide it or gets attacked on a lonely moor or you know so think of the hammer the 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 really good hammer werewolf story with with Oliver Reed for example completely different to that it could it was um it was really i was really surprised by how just how different it was very refreshing you know i was struck by how creepy it was given that you never see the werewolf yes I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. You, you never get. Good, that's an excellent point. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see the, the the culprit at the end with her fingers growing long slightly, and she's looking a bit ravenous. But you, it's all it's all atmosphere. 
and it's all direction. And I thought it actually was far creepier than I than I expected it to be. So I think yeah, I really enjoyed it. Incidentally, you mentioned uh, Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed. You know that Hammer mm. only made that one single werewolf film, never made another werewolf film, whereas yeah. Every yeah. other genre, you know, Dracula, vampires, Frankenstein, they made a whole shed load of them. Oh, but yeah, only, only one. Of yeah. yeah, they did tons of vampire ones. Um, I have a, I have an entire dedicated Hammer bookcase for all my Hammer movies. It's quite a small bookcase, granted, but it has all my Hammer movies. I've also got a Peter Cushing shelf, so there. there um, wow, that's yeah, impressive. Th- th- there, must be, there must be a good few Hammer films that we'd be able to talk about in the family tree. We should have to think about that. We will, we will. Right. On, on to the next one. Um, is this Alan Freeman's only acting role that we know of does IMDb say anything about this? I'm not aware of any others. That's not to say there aren't, but off the top of my head, um, yeah. you two discuss yeah, it, and I'll, in fact, yeah. I'll quickly I'll quickly tell you the, the premise of this section, and then you two discuss it. Right. We've got um, Fluff plays Bill Rogers, who um, has his wife and daughter, and they return from their holiday to discover a fast-growing vine in the garden. And then when it seems to respond violently to attempts to cut it down, uh, Rogers, who's Fluff's character, goes to the MOD where he gets advice from scientists who are played by Bernard Lee, yes, M, and Jeremy Kemp. Um, But the plant becomes intelligent and then it decides to harbour some homicidal tendencies towards anyone who wants to kill it. A dog strangled by a vine. I can hardly believe it. A plant that protects itself. It's impossible. You see, each stage, each uh, adaption, each uh, mutation is is one step higher in the battle of the plant kingdom for survival. Now, what if a a plant were to take the next step? And what if there were a a mutation that could develop intelligence, the, the ability to protect itself, perhaps even to know who its enemies were and uh, destroy them? A plant like that could take over the world. But it's not possible. It's fantastic. Mm. I wonder. Of course, it's a fantastic trope. The the deadly plant is used by the Avengers and and Doctor Who, of course, would later use it itself in Seeds of Doom. And it's a really terrible voice. Of course. Good short film, and I really enjoyed it. I thought Fluff Freeman was great in this. Yeah, yeah, he was quite good. Um, I, I remember from my childhood seeing this and thinking that I wasn't looking forward to seeing this one again because I thought when I was a kid it was just a bit rubbish and a, a bit unbelievable with rubbish special effects. But funny, I was watching it with Carolyn and she was creeped out about it. Um, you know, the, especially the bit where the dog dies, which is horrific. It's the most yes. horrific thing that happens yes. in the whole film. But but it was oddly sinister having this ridiculous rubbish plant special effect. Um, and I thought the ending of it was incredibly understated in mm. its in its villainy, because mm. you know you can interpret one way or another. But I interpreted it as Bernard Lee pissing off and saving his skin at the expense of the family. Yeah, that's how I read it too. Yeah, which is, it was very which is pretty evil. dark, isn't it? It was nicely ambiguous because you're you know ostensibly he's going away for help, but then you sort of think, yeah, you know, either. Either he is trying to just save, you know, save himself, or will it be too late by the time he gets back? Or another way of interpreting it is that when you see the, the bit of paper that's alight and the plant putting it out, maybe he yes. did, maybe he didn't get away. Or did you that's hear true. the car? Did you hear the car speeding off? I can't remember now. 
Oh, I don't Can't remember. Fluff Freeman did a couple of other acting roles. He's in Absolute Beginners, and he played himself or a similar character in a few films. And, of course, he pops up in two episodes of The Young Ones. Ah, right, right. Okay, good. Shall we move on to the third instalment? And this is the this is the very light-hearted one, really, isn't it? This is the comic relief one uh, yeah. with Roy Castle. Now, of course, now the first Doctor Who film was, what, 66? 65. 65, so the same year. Um, yep. And, and be, you, you just watch this, and it's not particularly horrific. It's not particularly scary. It is played for laughs. But you've got to admire Roy Castle for his physical comedy, haven't you? I mean, he is just well, he, brilliant. He's terrific. The thing that really surprised me was how, um, and I mean this in the best possible way, how similar his performance was to what he did with Ian Chesterton in the Dalek Absolutely. movie. Yeah, it was, uh, that, they that were, did strike me, yeah. You know, there was a, a, quite a few little mo- movements and ticks and stuff. I thought, no, you, did, you do that. I mean, Roy, you know, God bless him, an absolute all-rounder. You know, a real entertainer, and you know, with a capital E, and sort of could pull anything off, really. And it's, um, you know, we know him as well from he's in a couple of the Carry On films, isn't he? Am I right? Is he in Carry On Up the Kyber, or am I imagining things? He is in Carry On Up the Kyber, he is yeah. indeed. You know, because you know, well known from well, we know him as, as, as middle aged Doctor Who fans, we know him from from the long running Record Breakers program. Um, and it's, it's, I really enjoyed seeing him taking a little turn, and it was good seeing Kenny Lynch as well. Yeah, and yeah. there's maybe a few moments in that story that you could maybe, with a bit of hindsight, you'd say were slightly problematic. But it was um, very <laughs> yes. Let, let, let's let's talk about that, shall we? <laughs> now, obviously, in the 1960s, doing any kind of even light-hearted horror film set in the West Indies, all sorts of alarm bells are ringing. Yes. <laughs> in 2021, <laughs> obviously, you know. <laughs> But they don't make it easy for themselves, do they? Because first of all, you've got, when he's told about this gig in the West Indies, Mm. Roy Castle's uh, character does an impersonation of an Indian person, not even a West Indian person. He actually does a a impression, a kind of Peter Sellers, oh my goodness gracious me, uh, impression. So that's offensive to start with. But they didn't even get the right people to offend. You know, they've just offended (laughs) You know, just awful. Um, yeah. But, you know, as I say, 1965. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I expected it to be worse. <laughs> I, I, <didn't. laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was bad. It's bad. I mean, that's not to excuse what they did say, you know, because that is dreadful. It's horrible and it's very uncomfortable. But yeah, it, I think you can imagine it could actually have been worse because I'm sure there's plenty of films out there that are, yes. But yeah, I really enjoyed this where we've got. Um, Roy's playing a jazz musician and uh, steals a tune from a local voodoo ceremony, which he then brings back to London for a jazz composition with dire consequences. Who are you? Where's Bailey? Where's um, um, Bailey? What is this? Oh, well, I was listening to your music, so I, uh, I wrote it down. You wrote down the sacred music of the great god Dambella. It could be, it could be a hit. Make, make, make a fortune. Uh, if, uh, if, if you uh, wrote it, and we could go 50-50. It belongs to the god Dambella. 
known only to his own people for centuries. Oh, well, well, if it's that old, then it's out of copyright. I can just take it up. You're creasing my shirt. The god Dumbala is a jealous god. If you steal from him, he will be revenged. Wherever you are, he will be revenged. Do not steal from the god Dumbala. Now, go. Now, does he die at the end? I got the impression he just fainted and he kind of got yeah, away with it. That's what I thought as well. He, he, he just sort of was overwhelmed by the whole situation and, mm -hmm. and, and, and fainted. Um, it was Again, it was left nicely ambiguous about what had actually happened and that final final shot of him, the way it's framed, is the, the big chap walks out the door. It was thought, this is great. This is not phoned in. This is not point and shoot. They've, they've really yeah. made an effort to make this look good. And, and for those perhaps sensitive souls, perhaps millennials who might be listening to this, I doubt if there are any, please don't cancel Dr. Terrace House of Horrors. If you're, if you're going to be offended by it, please feel free to be offended, but watch it anyway because it's, it's worth watching. Now, the next one is terrific. Kenny, tell us about the next one. Yes, the next one is Disembodied Hand, which has got Christopher <laughs> Lee as the main character, who's a pompous art critic, Franklin Marsh, but he's more concerned with his own wit and his own image than the actual art. So he comes up against painter Eric Landor, who's played by the celestial toy maker or councillor Hedden, Michael Goff, and he takes the brunt of one of uh, Christopher Lee's tirades, but gets even by humiliating. Uh, Mr. Lee publicly. If we are discussing money, pray let us not delay you any longer. I was under the impression we were discussing art. Take this masterpiece, for example. Just what is it supposed to say? It is merely a series of splodges of paint applied without any creativity whatsoever. What is it supposed to mean? Oh, nothing specific. The viewer is supposed to react to it, to create his own meaning out of his own experience. Everyone will see something quite different in it. In other words, it means absolutely nothing. To those who can't see. But I can see, Mr. Landor, I can see very well when there's something worth seeing. I live by my vision, Mr. Landor. Mr. Marsh, we have a canvas in from a young artist we're thinking of exhibiting shortly. I wonder if you'd mind telling us what you think of his work. Well, it's highly irregular. Oh, please, please, please. 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 Well, very well, just this once. Thank you. Ah, oh, no, this is quite a different matter. Quite a different matter indeed. Clearly the work of a creative artist of considerable promise. Notice the wide sweep of colour, the balance, the brushwork. Together with a certain denial of the accepted standards. The mock critical humour of the entire composition. You could learn a great deal about painting from this artist, Mr. Landor. Then I should very much like to meet him. Would that be possible? He's here now, as a matter of fact. Indeed. <laughs> However, when Landor takes it too far, Marsh responds by driving over him with his car, causing Landor to lose one of his hands. But unable to paint anymore, Landor commits suicide. But Marsh is then tormented by the disembodied hand, which seems immune to fire as well as attempts to contain it, leading to Marsh's eventual blindness in a car accident of his own. It's also got a couple of other Doctor Who guest stars in this one as well. It's got Isla Blair as the pretty girl and Judy Cornwell from Paradise Towers as the nurse. Very I didn't good. spot either of them. No, no, I didn't did spot I. them at all. I think when I get the box set back from Tom, I'll need to have a, another spin through it and have a look. Yeah, uh, young Isla Blair. Very, very nice. Very pretty girl. Uh, this is my favourite of the lot of them. 
uh, oh, uh, really? I, I, and, and yeah, partly because it's Christopher Lee who I love, um, and he, he does it so well. You know, he doesn't. There's no little kind of wink to the camera. He just plays it exactly. Uh, you know, he plays it seriously, um, yeah. and 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 that's what you need in a in a film like this. Um, I love his character. I hate his character, but I love the way he's he's portrayed him. I think it was a quite a thoughtful little story. I love the nods to old. Uh, horror tropes like the you know the the beast with five fingers you know the Peter Laurie the beast film. with five fingers the Kenny Smith life story outrageous That's outrageous that every take, time take that to court mention, every time we mention the beast with five fingers on this podcast I've made that joke this is not the first time and, ha, I, and it have, will not be the last have it out in court guys um, <laughs> with five and, fingers and and the the disembodied hand is is one of those horror tropes that's just beloved of of filmmakers and of course the Adams family, and uh, I thought it worked really well in this. I thought the actual mechanical hand looked really quite uh, yeah. pretty impressive, and uh, and I, I just it was a bit more thoughtful, you know, the kind of you know the the irony of the you know the the, the artist who can't paint, the critic who can't see. I thought it was all quite thoughtful. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it was, it's interesting what you're saying about Christopher Lee because if you watch the Dracula movies that Hammer that he made for Hammer, it's very rare that he actually gets to do any acting. Yeah, he just sort yeah. of stands there looking menacing or or seductive or whatever. So it's um it's good to watch some of the movies that he made, you know, before and later and around you know around the time when when he does get the chance to step away from the cloak almost and and do some proper some proper work and I, it's, yeah. it's good to, yeah really good also let's mention how good Michael Goff is as well he's excellent in this yeah it's just amazing that Michael Goff didn't become a huge star in the way that many contemporaries did the likes of Anthony Hopkins um, and just you know actors of, of that ilk who you know, British actors Michael Caine who went on and became huge international stars but Michael Goff for some reason is best remembered as Alfred the Butler Michael Goff was also in the first Hammer Dracula movie. Let's remember, of course, um, teaming up with Peter Cushing to stop to stop Christopher Lee. Um, that's another nice little sort of crossover. No, you're absolutely right, Kenny. There's an awful lot of British actors of that certain age that they get they've they got a certain part in Hollywood at a certain time and it's locked locked them out. And some I think are more deserving than others. Like Anthony Hopkins, a brilliant actor, time served and all that sort of stuff. You know, and really deserved the, the exposure that he got. But there's a few others. I can name names, but maybe I won't. That I just think, you know, how the heck have you got as far as you did? <laughs> and on to the last segment starring Donald Sutherland entitled Vampire. Nicole is my wife. You know what a vampire is? It's a spirit that takes up residence in a human body, conferring upon it the power to turn into a bat at night so that it can glut itself on the blood of innocent victims. And if the victim dies, he becomes a vampire, and after death rises from the grave and walks the earth in search of blood. That would have happened to Johnny. He died of Nicole's bite. It may happen to her next victim. Tonight, she'll go in search of someone. Watch her. The only way to kill a vampire is to drive a wooden stake through its heart. Watch her when she returns. Kenny, tell us about it. Yes, we've got Donald Sutherland during that phase when he was living and working in Britain and shows up in shows like The Avengers and various others. He plays Dr. Bob Carroll, 
who returns to his home in the US with his new French bride, Nicole, who's played by Jennifer Jane. But soon there's evidence that a vampire is on the loose and Carol seeks the aid of his colleague, Dr. Blake, played by Max Adrian, who, of course, is the king in Doctor Who and the Myth Makers. They find ah. that Nicole is the vampire and following Blake's advice, Carol kills Nicole. When the police come to arrest Carol for his wife's murder, Blake denies giving any such advice. And as the police take Carol away, Carol away, Blake says to himself that the town isn't big enough for two doctors or two vampires. And he transforms into a bat. That's why I couldn't remember it, because I dismissed it because I hated the ending. <laughs> oh, I love, love the ending. I thought it was such a clever wee story. Uh, yeah, it's a good little story. Yeah, I just I remember being about, oh, come on, cringe. <laughs> I found it very tales of the unexpected. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, yes, I. Uh huh. That's a that's a that's a fair. Yeah. It's just, it's a it's a great regret of mine that in the nineteen sixties and seventies, no matter how many horror uh, vampire movies they made, they just could not get their technical heads round uh, animation of bats. They just couldn't do it. Um, all the way from Bella Lugosi in, in, in the early 30s up until, well, goodness knows, up until at least the 80s, they just couldn't do bats. And if you look at uh, a, a show that I've mentioned before, What We Do in the Shadows, when those vampires turn into bats, they, it's just fantastic. It's just a bat. It's, it's, uh, it's a pity they couldn't do that back in the 60s. It always takes me a little bit out of the... Of the narrative when I see these bats because they are crap. They're always crap. <laughs> yeah, they don't do that too often in the Hammer Dracula movies. The only one that really springs to mind when they do use bats, I think, is it Scars of Dracula, which is my, right. my least favourite. It's just but Dennis so Waterman. Yeah. yeah, I think I don't think he wrote the theme tune for it though. Sadly, no, um, he didn't. He did. <laughs> yeah, the, mo the most visceral and unpleasant of the, the Hammer Draculas, and, and the, you know, there's a horrible scene at the start when the bats attack people in a church. And I remember the first, it was the last of the Hammer Dracs that I saw, and I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, oh God, this is horrible. <laughs> the, the, the Hammer were more prone to use the bats in films like uh, Kiss of the Vampire, the kind of. That's a great movie. The, the ones that don't really involve Dracula. Yeah. Anyway, back to Amicus. Who, of course, were Hammer's main kind of horror rival back in the back in the sixties. Yeah. So, did you like this particular one, Kenny? This insert to this particular uh, instalment? Yes, absolutely loved it. I mean, I particularly loved the wee twist at the end uh, when the framing story comes to an end, when Doctor Shrek informs the men that they can avoid their horrible destinies by dying first. But then, when the train stops, they find out they're already dead, having perished in a train in a train crash, which made me laugh. Which I think is quite a nice wee. It, it, it's sort of it's nonsensical in a way, but it's still damn good fun. And Peter Cushing is just so good as death himself. It's a great twist, but you know, once you've seen a few of these anthologies, they they kind of use that same ending. Yeah, they certainly, they certainly yeah. use it in Vault of Horror. I can't remember if they use them in others, but yeah, yeah, it, it started out being quite original. But of course, as with all original ideas, once you've overused them, they're no longer original. But yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great ending. I think it's just a great film. It's it's really enjoyable, and even the the weaker of the of the entries are still very entertaining. And I think if you can say that about a film, then it can't be that bad. If the if the weakest part is still enjoyable, and you don't think, oh God, I wish this was over and done with. Yeah. Final thought, David. Yeah, just as much like I said at the start, I hadn't seen it for a long time. I was really impressed by seeing it again, um, and I hope that we can do some more of the anthologies because you know the cast lists are phenomenal. There's about to be there's about to be a few people that we can link up to Doctor Who in them.
Right. Well, I've enjoyed that, guys. That's uh, yeah. another, another uh, family trees under our belt. Uh, awesome. Th thanks for nominating that, Kenny. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. I'm glad you did too. Yeah, nice one. I was genuinely surprised. But as I said at the start, the only person I could I could have named off the top of my head that I recognised from being in Doctor Who was Michael Goff. So really impressed that there were so many others. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Lots of lots of Doctor Who types in there. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod. Um, visit the website powerofthreepod.com. Visit our Facebook page. And please leave us a review, a good one, uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you can't bring yourself to give us a good review, don't bother at all. Thank you very much. So from me, Tom Harris, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon. From me, David Steele, take care. Be safe. And from myself, Kenny, goodbye, and please don't have nightmares. I was working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight monster from its slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. He did the monster